You're listening to The Artful Periscope, the nimble art of storytelling, pulling the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. How many threads contribute to a cascading series of events? On this episode, and by the way, I'm going off script, this whole episode is going to be amazing. First guest is Paul Moses, author of The Italian Squad, stops by, followed by Julia Boyd, author of A Village in the Third Reich. Paul, Mo- Paul Moses is a professor emeritus of journalism at CUNY, Brooklyn College, and a former reporter and editor at Newsday. And Paul, off the top, I want to thank you. I'm going to tell you why, because we had to cancel you earlier, and I am thrilled to have you back. He's uh, a author. We could do this. He's the author of Yatang Squad, a true story of immigrant cops who fought the rise of the mafia. Once again, jump right in, Paul. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm, I'm glad we're able to do it, Larry. Thank you. So I'm going to come start off with what I call an overview of then and now. And you can take this any way you want. It's said that history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. Do you agree or disagree with that? I mean, the things that happened in this book with police over 100 years ago do seem very present in a lot of ways. So it, 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 it kind of echoes, yeah. So I like exploring or, origin stories. Before we get into the origin story of the book, let's talk a little bit about you, where you're from, and how you grew up. Okay, well, I grew up in Brooklyn, and um, I became a, a newspaper reporter. I did that for uh, 23 years. Um, I covered uh, North Jersey then, and then New York City. Um, I worked for mainly for New York Newsday uh, was the paper. Covered... A lot of different things, organized crime being one of them, the courts, city hall, religion, all different kinds of subjects. And um, then I went into uh, the academic world. I was at uh, Brooklyn College, which was my undergraduate alma mater, and I taught journalism there for uh, 16 years. Um, the, the books, um, I started writing them, uh, the, you know, about First one was about 20 years ago, so I've written four four books, uh, and this one on the Italian squads, the latest, and it kind of brings me back to the days when I I did write a lot about policing and 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 organized crime, so uh, it, it took me back in a lot of ways to those days. So, what degree do you address what I call the mythology of organized crime versus the reality of organized crime? I never found gangsters to be glamorous or even like very interesting people to be honest i the, this book focuses on the detectives uh who who went after them so it it i i don't uh i i, I certainly don't glamorize the gangsters uh, uh the ones i've covered as a reporter seem very small-minded and the ones i've written about in this book seem you know very brutal so that that's kind of my take on uh, on them. I'm more interested in the police uh, who were kind of in between a community of Italians who distrusted the police department and between a, a larger society that distrust distrusted Italians. So that, that that story seemed compelling to me. So you lead me into my next question. And my next question is: Are you addressing and, in a sense, edifying us about what I call the immigrant experience in America? Yeah, very much so. Uh, this is the uh, Italian immigrants experience distilled, but that's really the experience of of immigrant groups coming today, too. It, 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 it's very similar. There's differences, different laws and, and so forth, but the, the essential experience is, is very much the same today. I'm a big movie fan, and I'm going to reference a movie. It takes place in an earlier time frame, but I think it may be appropriate. And the movie is The Gangs of New York, starring Daniel Day-Lewis and Leonardo DiCaprio. And once again, it gets into the tribal aspects of gangs and immigrants. And I think that resonates very strongly also in your book. Yeah, no, New York is a, is a very tribal city in a lot of ways. Um, and, and so the police department was uh, largely dominated by, by the Irish. And so it was a little difficult for people from other nationalities to, uh, to advance in the department, to win the respect and be accepted as, you know, NYPD. Uh, and so part of the book is the story of, of the Italian officers and how they, how they, you know, dealt with that. So the follow-up question is obvious in my mind. They're in a minority. It's pretty much 
the Irish business. Why join the NYPD? Well, I think that they, these detectives I wrote about, the commanders of the Italian squad over the years, they felt a mission that their community was not being well policed. The department, did, very few officers could speak Italian, and, 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 and so the department was largely unable to connect with the Italian community. The Italian community felt that maybe the department wasn't really that interested if, if the crime was occurring within the Italian community. So they were attracted to this police work. And there were, of course, there were police in the, people in the police department who knew this, this was a need that they had to fill and were, were seeking, you know, uh, Italian-born uh, uh, detectives and, and police officers. In terms of crime fighting, I'm going to reference another movie and television program called The Untouchables with Elliot Ness. He brought together a coalition to fight organized crime. I guess, in a sense, is that also true about the Italian squad? They bring a, a coalition to fight organized crime, which is rampant in their own neighborhoods, and the crime is going against Italian citizens also. Yeah, well, the, the Italian squad detectives did come from various parts of Italy, and a, and a few non-Italians, uh, uh, mainly of Irish background, who had bothered to learn Italian and were interested in, in helping out also. Um, so yeah, there, there was this attempt to come together, uh, to deal with the problem. And the, a big part of the policing is to draw, um, allies in the Italian community who cooperate with the police and right. tell them what was going on. Right. So I'm, uh, correct, uh, feel free to correct me if mispronounce his name, Giuseppe Petrosino. He, yeah, that's good. Yeah. He is Giuseppe the, Petrosino. He's mm -hmm. the key figure in this book. Who is he? Why is he so important? In a sense, why is the locus... His, he is the locus of this book, The Italian Squad. He is the founding uh, founder of The Italian Squad, uh, and he's, uh, he was famous in his lifetime, uh, became even more famous uh, really across the country and, and elsewhere uh, when he was murdered while he was on an undercover mission in Sicily. Uh, Well-remembered to this day in New York, especially in the police department. So... He's 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 been written about quite a bit, and you know you probably know the movie as as above uh, pay or die with Ernest Borgnine. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, and that movie ends with Petrosino's murder. My, my book starts starts with it, and I was intrigued by, especially since Petrosino's story has been told quite a bit. I was intrigued by the people who followed in his footsteps after he was murdered. They worked for Petrosino. They they were close to him. Um, they very much wanted to solve his murder. Uh, and they wanted to continue his work, which they did up for a number of years until the squad was ended. Um, so he he's uh, he, he's a standout figure. And I found, even though I was concentrating on the people who followed him, that he was, yes, as you say, the dominant figure in the book. His name's in the index more than anybody else's. Right. Um, because he's always there, but mostly in flashback in the book. So another thing I like to explore with nonfiction is what I call the dustbin of history and how writers of nonfiction do their research and bring back a lot of characters that have been forgotten. To what degree does your book bring back what I call resurrected from the dustbin of history? Yeah, many of the characters are mostly forgotten. Um, Petrosino, you could not say that for, um, but uh, certainly the other police officers are, uh, um, have not gotten this kind of uh, uh, treatment uh, in, 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 a, in a book. And, and then there's other people like some of the mayors uh, even are pretty much forgotten, but are really fascinating uh, figures in their own way. Like say a mayor Gaynor, who was probably the most true blue civil libertarian ever to hold high office anywhere. Um, and which led to some, you know, clashes with how to run the police department or Mayor McClellan, who was the son of a famous Civil War general and kind of how that was somewhat of a chip on his shoulder because his, his father was somewhat, you know, doesn't have a great historical legacy. So this is the podcast, Artful Periscope. I'm Larry Davidson. My guest is Paul Moses, the author of The Tang Squad, the true story of immigrant cops who fought the rise of the mafia. So we put that all out there. Give us the time frame that you cover in this book, The Italian Squad. Yeah, the squad existed on and off from 1904 to 1922. So, so 
So I'm going to re- uh, reference another movie that I love. I love all three episodes, and that's The Godfather. Sure. In one of the episodes, we learn about one of the characters in The Black Hand. What was The Black Hand, and was it the precursor to the rise of the mafia in America? So The, the Black Hand was known at the time as a secret society um, that did uh, systematic extortion. And if people didn't pay up, uh, it was pay or die, right? Uh, bombings uh, and so forth. They, they did kidnappings. But the, the key to it was that it was never a, a single big secret society. It, it really rested on a misunderstanding. Um, some criminals in 1903 had the bright idea of writing this blackmail letter but signing it from the mano nera, the black hand. And the police uh, arrested the perpetrators right away in Brooklyn. And that was that. But the papers really hyped up this idea of a black hand. And then any two-bit criminal who wanted to scare somebody would just send a letter saying it was from the black hand. And the papers often interpreted this as, coming from a single society that was based in Sicily or Naples. And, and it was never the case. It was never foreign run or so some of these groups, what, what, what Joseph Petrosino and his other officers were really concerned about was that some of these groups would get more sophisticated. And ultimately that, that, that does occur. So yeah, the mafia, I guess you could say is distantly related to this uh, in that, some of the people we would call members of the mafia, which doesn't really come about till the the early 1930s in America, um, kind of had their roots in this kind of criminality. So let's go back to 1903. What was the Barrel murder or murders? Yeah, the Barrel murder was one of the spectacular cases of the day. Uh, It involved a a counterfeiting gang and a man that uh, I guess was suspected of possibly uh, informing, uh, or his brother may have been the one who who was suspected of informing, uh, who was murdered and his body uh, left in a barrel on the Lower East Side. And uh, I guess it was just so grim. it, it, it It was a big story. You know, it was a big newspaper war in New York at the time. And, uh, Everybody went after it, and 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 Joseph Petrosino was in the forefront of uh, responding to that case. He worked with two detectives who were the the cream of the NYPD, and that's kind of where he really uh, made a big reputation. I also want to go back a touch, just because I'm curious. Although I did read the book and thoroughly enjoyed it, why was Petrosino originally sent to Italy? Yeah, in 1907 there was a law passed that allowed uh, the government, our government, to deport people who arrived in the United States concealing a criminal record. And Petrosino believed that really the, the, the crime problem among Italians in New York was largely the work of a small group of people who had come over to escape Italian justice. And, had come, and they were criminals there and they were criminals here. And he really felt that if he could catch those people and send them back, it would, it would really nip the whole problem in the bud. And uh, so t- he, the thing was you had to deport them within three years of their arrival. So he, he, the main purpose was to go over there and get these, these records that would prove their criminal record, and then it would be easy for him to get them out of New York. Uh, it was hard to convict them of crimes because people were reluctant to testify. Right. right. Mm-hmm. So I want to talk about precursors in terms of the timeline of history, and I'm curious for your thoughts about this. Was the Italian squad, through law enforcement history, the ancestor to undercover units? I would say so, yes. Um, certainly in the United States, I, I, I believe so. There were other specialized squads that were being that were formed at the time, even in, in imitation of the Italian squad. And, and over the years, yeah, yeah. To what degree was there an aspect of abusive investigations and interrogations of people thought to be involved in organized crime through the Italian, Italian squad and anybody following them? 
I mean, there's no question that they were they could they were rough on people. There's there's no disputing it. Um, and some interrogations were pretty brutal. Uh, how different that was from, I don't know how different that was from police methods in general. Petrosino had learned in the old school, and and that was imparted to the uh, the other cops on the squad. Um, so, yeah, no, there's. There's a lot of uh, uh, cases where where um, violence was used, or even people were threatened uh, with sort of extrajudicial violence if right. they didn't, right. you know, cl- cl- you know, shape up. So uh, it's it's definitely a part of the story. Uh, and the truth is that th- there was a, a backlash against police uh, unnecessary police uh, violence in that period, uh, started by the mayor, Mayor Gaynor. Um, but it was more just kind of wanton use of a nightstick. The Italian squad's violence was tend to be targeted at people who they had information were, were criminals. Uh, That's not to excuse it at all. Um, but, uh, it, it was employed. Yes. All right. So once again, let's go back into history and timeline of history. What, why was the Sullivan law? Let me back up. What was the Sullivan law and how was it used? against Italians in a sense, and then referring back maybe to the Black Hand. A very famous uh, state senator, very famous because he was kind of a big Tammany Hall rascal, but, you know, lovable in a lot of ways. Uh, Big Tim Sullivan pioneered the uh, Sullivan Law. Nobody knows what to make of his backing of it because he had so many connections to gambling and, and prostitution rings himself. But he, this law was important to him, and and he, he championed its passage. Um, it it uh, it it basically um, uh, uh, was the first major gun control law, um, and as you know, it was uh, toppled by the Supreme Court only only very recently. Um, uh, and one of the critiques made even before the Supreme Court uh, just recently was that this law was. Uh, a tool of discrimination against uh, by, you know, uh, keeping guns away from one class of people in that t- time period, Italians. Um, and uh, I, I examine that in, in, in the book there. It, it's overstated because the, the, the cases that really led to the Sullivan law that they were not Italian crimes. One was the shooting of the mayor, Gaynor, who was seriously wounded by somebody who was not Italian. And the other was a shooting of a, of a famous writer or actor. Uh, same deal, not not by an Italian. Those were the cases that really pushed the Sullivan Law. But I think if you read the newspapers at that time, you would think that this law was passed um, strictly to stop Italians from from uh, having guns. Um, so, in terms of your research, you go back to newspapers at the time to kind of get some more information. Your newspaper man was probably easier for you, but it must have been a lot of fun just to go back and read how this whole story is portrayed. I uh, I loved it, although sometimes it was sobering because I would get other information that wouldn't have been available at the time that that shows that some of the accounts were way, were way off, too. So you have to be careful what you take. But uh, and I read them all. You know, uh, I found some of the Brooklyn papers were, were particularly uh, uh, careful with the facts, I, I thought. I'm a Brooklynite, so I, I may be prejudiced. So but, I, yeah, that, that was fun. What I like to do is, once again, we talked about the dustbin of history. There's so many names in here that I didn't know anything about. Thank God you put them in the book and gave us background on each. So let's talk about the makeup of the Italian squad because they are very important to this story. Some of the names that probably will never be remembered until you put them back in your book. So just kind of set the scene about all the people that are involved in this Italian squad. Well, there were three biggies who I focus on besides Joseph Petrosino. One is Anthony Vacris, who became commander of the squad. He had earlier been commander of a separate Brooklyn Italian squad. Um, Charles Correo, who was born in Sicily. His brother was a very prominent lawyer in the Italian community. And uh, Michael Fiaschetti, who um, was the um, commander of the Italian squad in his later years. All of them were, in their lifetime were, at the time were nationally famous. They, right. they were celebrity detectives. But uh, I don't know, for some reason, their story really had not been told at length. Um, so I noticed this in working on a previous book, and I, it made me want to, want to do it. Um, and there were lots of other uh, 
uh, detectives on the squad who have kind of cameo appearances uh, who are interesting uh, figures as well. There's a fellow um, named Crowley who was Irish who who really bothered to learn Italian uh, and was very good with languages and he he uh, he was a big plus for the Italian squad. Uh, characters like that. Years ago, I sat down with Dan Mahoney, who writes fic- fiction. He was a former NYPD detective. Mm-hmm. And by the way, his brother was a cop for a short period of time. His brother was Eddie Money. Mm-hmm. And the one thing mm-hmm. he said to me, because he was up there and he, he had his own way of doing things, but he also called where they had to go the puzzle palace. So in uh-huh. terms of dealing with the politics of the police department, what was that like in the day? Police, wait, right now the building's one police plaza. It was a different right. building in, in those days. Right. I really got into the uh, the politics of it because I realized it was so much a part of the life of the Italian squad detectives. They were really frustrated by both the interdepartmental politics and the larger politics in the city. And it, I, I think I, I'm, I'm learning from police nowadays who read the book that I think they, they kind of identify with that kind of frustration of dealing both within the NYPD and and, you know, the policies of the larger city. And uh, there's a lot of obstacles that police deal with. And, and I found that was really the story of the Italian squad was the obstacles and how they dealt with them. So, so I'm going uh, to reference, I, I didn't mean to interrupt, so you can interrupt me no. anytime, feel free. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm going to reference another famous president, and that's Woodrow Wilson. Why did he authorize Detective Fiaschetti to go to Italy? That's a wonderful story. Yeah, well, there was a, a, t- a really nasty um, double murder in, in, in New York. Um, two young women who just happened to be in the wrong place. Uh, you know, they were they were leaving their office in, in Little Italy and, and, and they were going out to the theater or something like that. And there was a gangland shooting and uh, they, they, these two young women got killed. So he, he really tried to, uh, uh, the detective really tried to make a case on this. And he did figure out that the uh, suspect had fled to Italy. And, um, uh, you know, the, the Italian police were able to take, take the man into custody. But they needed him to go over there and, and assist with the, uh, with the case. Uh, so uh, in order, and, and, and to try to bring him back, it turned out the, the Italians changed their mind about right. bringing him back. And he was tried under Italian law and sentenced to for double murder to eight and a third years, which is not very much for a double murder in New York. Uh, uh, but Fiaschetti went over there and tried to, uh, and in connection with that case, and he needed actually a letter from the president to be able to uh, have that authority. All right, another big name, Theodore Roosevelt. How did he come across in your story? He um, was the... Uh, a police commissioner uh, in the 1890s in New York. At that time, there was a board of three. I think he was the head of the board. And uh, he tried to shake up the uh, detective bureau because of corruption. Um, you may have heard of the Lexow committee hearings. Um, they, re- they revealed a lot of corruption at the time. And Part of that shakeup, he he promoted Joseph Petrosino to uh, to detective. He had been in the department for a while and wasn't getting anywhere. But so so that's the main way that he he figures in the story. So why was the Tang Squad disbanded? What was the politics behind that? I think it were, there were there were a number of things going on there. Um, the commanding officer Fiaschetti was great at keeping crime on the front page, but a mayor doesn't particularly like that. You know, Fiaschetti tended to hype things up. Um, secondly, uh, uh, there they, were, uh, uh, Fiaschetti got himself in trouble by uh, beating up a lawyer for, for uh, who, who uh, had burst in on him while he was uh, questioning the lawyer's client. Um, so, and I, th- I think there's also a sense in the Italian community that, all right, we want police protection, but do we have to have a squad called the Italian squad? It makes us look bad. Right. And, and that, you know, that, that's, that's a realistic thing also. So I, I, I and, and finally, uh, it's, I, I, I could not prove this, 
But this is just when a squad like this is really needed, 1922, when prohibition is empowering these gangs that are, are literally do business within sight of police, police headquarters. Um, it, this is when the mafia is really starting to form. Uh, and, and uh, you know, this is Tammany Hall era. They're, they're, uh, there's a, a strong constituency to protect gambling and, and vice. So I, I couldn't draw a straight line on that, but I think that's in the mix also. Another name that fans of the opera may know of, Enrico Caruso, you mentioned they did a lot. There was bombings, there were blackmails, there were a whole bunch of things. What was the story about Enrico Caruso in terms of what you write about in your book? So Caruso was the victim of a black hand type extortion. The people who were extorting him were professional criminals. They, they, were, they were not uh, kind of the amateur sort of black hander. And... Um, the Italian squad made a case. It's often been presented in retrospect as a triumph, but it, it really turned out to be a very badly managed case. They had appointed an Irish head of the Italian squad for a, for a short while after Joseph Petrosino uh, left uh, fatally. And um, he really, it was not the right job for him. And, and they kind of flubbed the case. And it was only after that that they brought the kind of rightful successor to Petrosino, Anthony Bacris, who was Italian, uh, in, in, in. So uh, Caruso was here. Second. Sorry. All right. Better? Yeah, it was on, it was on our end. It was a yeah. little bit of a... Oh, okay. Um, so let me see. So what do you remember what we, we talked about? Talk about the Irish, uh, the new Irish commander of the squad. I was talking about, you had asked about the Enrico Caruso right. case. Right, right. you so, want to start it from the beginning? You want, can you, all right, yeah, yeah. start from the end. Start from the end. We'll, we'll, edit, it we'll edit it out. So one of the most high-profile cases the Italian squad hand, handled, and this came after Joseph Petrosino had died, um, involved Enrico Caruso. He was tremendously popular, especially in the Italian community. He was the victim of a black hand shakedown attempt. Right. And this was done by really professional criminals. This is not the amateur, you know, uh, black hand type. And... He, to his credit, cooperated with the police and testified, although he was extremely scared. The problem was, it's often been presented as kind of a, a triumph of the Italian squad, but the, the fact was they really uh, botched the case. There was a, an Irish commander of the uh, squad for a short while, and he, this was not the right job for him. It, it, it went very poorly, and um, they really... Blew the, blew the case by, by springing the trap too soon. So, but yeah, but yeah, it, it makes an interesting story of, of, the, of Caruso coming to court to, to testify. Uh, and, and of course the Italian squad detectives, they're all opera fans. They loved uh, right. helping out Caruso. Right. Mm -hmm. So what I'd like to do with the few minutes we have left in this first segment, and I'd like to pose the question, what did I miss? What did I get wrong? So what did I miss in terms of our conversation or something in the guts of the book? And did I get anything wrong or misstate anything? Yeah, uh, you're a great interviewer. I, 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 I didn't hear you uh, get anything wrong. Um, and there's, some, there's so many different angles to, uh, to talk about on a story like this. Um, uh, I like to talk a little bit about the, the research because that's because I enjoy it so much, we, you did bring it up, but there are a lot of other sources 
that I, w- I would use to kind of corroborate and check out what was in the, in the papers. The, the papers became almost a character in themselves because right. they, re- they right. drive the story in a lot, a lot. I was a reporter in City Hall, so I have a little feeling for how this world works. When I was there in the 80s and 90s, it wasn't so different from the way it was back, back then. Um, but there are uh, a lot of records. Um, the State Department, believe it or not, had very helpful records because all the communications between the police in New York and in Italy had to go through diplomatic channels. So, so that was very helpful. Um, the uh, Secret Service, they, 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 they had much more detailed records than the police had. And so um, they entered into the story quite a bit because they were investigating some of the same criminals for counterfeiting. And, and they had some pretty good uh, undercover informants. Uh, so there's some pretty good information uh, that they had. So th- there's things like that that I, uh, I, I, I often like to refer to when I talk about the book. Well, I have a really good feeling about spending time with you. My guest is Paul Moses. The book is called The Italian Squad, The True Story of the Immigrant Cops Who Fought the Rise of the Mafia. Paul, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Larry. I I do too. Thanks so much. I'm Larry Davidson. This is the podcast, Awful Periscope. After the break, Julia Boyd joins us. Her book is called The Village in the Third Reich. We'll be right The Artful Periscope is brought to you by Larry Davidson Productions. To learn more about Larry, previous interviews, and further content, visit LarryDavidsonProductions.com. Julia Boyd, with contributions from Angelica Patel, is the author of A Village in the Third Reich. This is what Publishers Weekly said about her book. Boyd and Patel pose difficult questions about ordinary Germans' complicity in the horrors of the Holocaust. Julia, it is an amazing book. Even in the middle of the night, I'm thinking about, don't screw up this interview because it's a very important book, especially what's happening back in history and even today, I think it's extremely relevant. So I wanna go back to the origin story in 2006 of the book, but that's a tease. What I wanna do first is your own origin story. Where did you grow up? Where are you from? And what brought you to sharing this information about the book with all of my listeners on my podcast, Artful Periscope? Well, can I say immediately how, how nice it is to be invited to join you this evening? And um, I, I look forward to our discussion. Well, my own background is um, not terribly exciting. I, I was born in England. My father was a naval officer. So as I grew up, I heard lots about the war. My mother had also was actually posted to Washington in the war and um, was part of the team trying to persuade the Americans to, to join us. Um, and I, um, I worked at the Victorian Albert Museum in London, and uh, then I met my husband, who is a diplomat. So we lived abroad in Germany and China and Hong Kong and uh, ended up in Japan. Um, and it was in Japan that I started really writing books. Um, so I, I rather enjoyed... Uh, doing that. And when we came back to England, we were, we spent 10 years in Cambridge where there are a lot of rather good libraries. So right. I thought, well, I must try and do this again. Um, so I kept going and um, really um, the Travellers in the Third Reich book, which I um, published, gosh, about six years ago now, um, was not my idea, but because I, I certainly never thought that I would ever in my wildest dreams write about the Nazis. I mean, it's a subject that's probably been written about more in my lifetime than any other, and by legions of brilliant historians. But um, my approach is perhaps slightly different because what I like to do is try and find unpublished sources, and I like to try and create a, a sense of what it was like to be there, there and then, in real time, as it were, because hindsight is makes life very easy. We can all look back and think how we should have done it or how it ought to have been. But um, what I try to do is to create a sense of what it was really like to actually live there in a particular place at that time. So you said something that really keyed a thought in me. The BBC has this wonderful documentary series called My Grandparents' War, where they go back (laughs) and they find the children and they go back and find what their grandparents did in World War II in, in terms of defending 
England. And you kind of referenced on that. And this series, I believe, which comes out of the BBC, we get it here in the States on PBS. And it's in his second season. And it is amazing how much the grandchildren didn't know anything about what the grandparents did. And thankfully for this series, I'm getting educated, but so are the offspring. So let's go back to the tease. It's 2006 right now, unless I can't remember the date. It's 2023. What transpired in 2006 that became, in a sense, the origin story for your book, A Village in the Third Reich? Um, 2006. Where was I in 2006? Well, um, I, we were just leaving Cambridge and coming to London. Um, and I'd written a book about foreigners in living in Peking. And, um, you know, I was thinking it'd be nice to find another subject. And then it was suggested to me um, that I, um, I write about um, travellers, people who were foreigners who were travelling in, in Germany in the 1930s. So that, that I must say, I had a... I, I really, I mean, it's rather embarrassing to say I enjoyed writing about such a terrible period in history, but I did find it fascinating because there's so much what I call raw, unfiltered history out there in the right. shape of diaries and letters and in in um, public records offices and people's attics, and um, it's 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 absolutely sort of a rich mine of of history if you go out and very often my best sources came from a casual conversation, perhaps as standing in the queue in the supermarket. And right. somebody would say, you know, my Uncle Joe rode a motorbike around Germany in the 1930s or something. So um, I, I, that's really what I do. I try to take a big chunk of history, like the Third Reich, and history doesn't come in much bigger chunks than that, and then try and look for the individual stories and weave them into the bigger picture. And in a sense, that's what the village book was all about, because um, you have this really small German community and you set it against uh, the dramas and horrors of the Third Reich. And perhaps, I think particularly for younger people, it may be easier to try and understand the enormity of what happened by looking at it through the experiences of uh, individuals. That is so interesting. The cardinal rule in doing interviews, don't mention another author and another book. But I'm, I'm going to do that right now. Please go ahead. <laughs> the book, I sat down with this man, um, Daniel Mendelssohn, for my radio and television programs. And he wrote a book called The Lost, The Search for Six of Six Million. And his operating premise was six million is a figure we can't grapple with. But six we can. Six individual stories can be much mm. more powerful. And I got a feeling, to a certain degree, that is your approach in A Village in the Third Reich. It's the individual stories that we can relate to, we can get angry with, or we can have our hearts and minds touched. But I think that's what you did in this book. It's certainly what I tried to do. <laughs> uh, whether I succeeded is another question. But um, I think also... Uh, again, reverting, I mean, I'm 74 now, so I grew up um, in the aftermath of the war. And it was, it was very, it, it, it was very present. You, you felt it all around you that everybody's parents had fought in the war. There were, you know, when I was little in London, there were still a lot of bombed out buildings. Right. Um, and the story I grew up was one that was, you know, either monsters and heroes, there was nothing in between. And what I've, tried to do in both the books I've written about this period is to present a rather more nuanced version of events because I don't know about you, but although, um, you know, we, we talk about black and white, but most of us live in, in the gray area between. And it's, you know, I think certainly this is true. People ask so much, why didn't the Germans resist Hitler? Why didn't they? Well, I think it's a so much more complicated picture than the one that certainly I grew up with because people may well have supported Hitler in the early stages because uh, for many reasons, um, uh, which I could enumerate. But um, as the years went by and they saw what the, the regime was really like, many people changed their minds. But then by then, of course, it was you couldn't really do that unless you were prepared to be a martyr because anybody who showed any dissent or 
resign their post in protest or anything like that would end up in um, a concentration camp or worse. So I, I think those those um, aspects of what happened in the Third Reich in the in these awful years is is it's, it's important to try and and understand this more nuanced um, version of events. So I want to broaden the discussion with your permission. In America, we're arguing about the original sin of slavery, and we're still wrestling with that today. It's going on right now in Florida. The governor of Florida says uh, the slaves learn useful tools, so they're going to change the history in the books in Florida. I, people, the audience can't see the reaction. I can see your reaction. That is an outstanding in, uh, interpretation of how you can change history when the slaves were saved because we gave them a vocation. So what about, I don't know what's the original sin in Europe and especially Germany, but in the hierarchy of sins, where does anti-Semitism and fascism fit in? Gosh, that's a big question, isn't it? Well, anti-Semitism, of course, has been rife for so long. And I think one of the points I hope I brought out perhaps more in Travelers than in, in the Village book was um, that although Germany, of course, Hitler took it to this, well, what does one say, to this utter tragic calling, one of the most dreadful things that's happened in human history. Um, but um, he, he wasn't alone. I mean, there was rife anti-Semitism, certainly in this country, in your country, and in France and all over Europe. And I think this encouraged Hitler to think that um, others would join him. Um, and so that anti-Semitism has been around, I think, ever since history was invented, really. Um, uh, and I, I don't know. I mean, there are, there are great efforts um, in this country and around the world to combat um, racism and anti-Semitism. I don't think I'm, I'm cynical enough to think that we will never entirely succeed because I think it's a sort of innate part of the human condition that people um, have prejudices and um, and act upon them. So I don't believe that as individuals we can ever wipe out these unpleasant aspects of human behavior. But I think societies have made, or at least some societies, have and are making real efforts to combat the worst uh, sides of racism and anti-Semitism, all these other horrors. So let's reset. I'm Larry Davidson. This is the podcast, Awful Periscope. My guest is Julia Boyd. Our book is called A Village in the Third Reich, subtitled How Ordinary Lives Were Transformed on the Rise of Fascism. So let's talk about those ordinary lives you relate in this book and how were they transformed by fascism? Well, again, it's, it's, it's an interesting, complicated picture because... Um, Oberstdorf, the village I write about, um, before the war had a small population of about 4,000. And I think although each and every village and small town had its own particular relationship to the regime, I think one thing they had in common was that even in a small community like that, you got a very diverse reaction to uh, the Nazis. Um, and it, it is quite complicated because although Oberstdorf voted consistently um, for Hitler, and the villagers, I think many of them admired Hitler very much. There were They didn't necessarily admire the people around him, and they didn't like the noisy SA stormtroopers. And what they really hated was when a Nazi mayor was um, pushed onto them um, in 1933, who started telling them what to do. These were, this was a mountain village in Bavaria, and the villagers were very proud and very independent. And like many societies in Germany, they had, lot, they had lots of different societies from beekeeping to zither playing to all, all kinds of different societies. And they were very proud of these and they liked to run them their own way. They liked to run their own lives their own way. And suddenly this Nazi mayor who was an outsider told them what they should do and how they should behave and how they should run their societies and they really didn't like that, and they managed to get rid of him quite promptly. But that didn't mean to say they didn't go on supporting Hitler. So um, 
get a more fractured picture once you start looking at a small community. Once you dive deep into one community, you start seeing these kind of uh, subtleties in how people reacted so and how their lives were affected. I'm going to reference somebody else I had the honor of sitting down with multiple times, including a public event. Her name is Ermgard Hunt. She wrote a book on Hitler's Mountain. She lived right below Birch's Garden and went to school with all the children of the SS. And I got to spend some time with her. And the reason why I mentioned her is because although her father was killed, they weren't necessarily a pro-Nazi family. These small villages in Germany fascinate me because it's not Berlin. So how are they different? Are they isolated or just their mindset is different than in terms of the Germans that stay in Berlin and other bigger cities? Um, well, I think there was a big difference between Bavaria and Berlin. For a start, um, the, the Bavarians and the Ober Oberstorfers were no exception. They, they hated the French, but they even more than the French, they hated the Prussians. They had, and they felt that the Weimar government, was a, they were a load of rubbish, that they were um, immoral and hopeless, weak government. So they longed for strong government. And so, uh, that was one of the attractions, of course, of Hitler, was that he offered such a, a contrast to the what the Bavarians regarded as hopeless uh, central government in Berlin. We, of course, think of the innovative cinema and music and right. the, the playwrights right. and the poets and so on. But it didn't look like that if you were sitting right down in Bavaria in Oberstdorf. Um, so certainly initially they, they welcomed this, this, this strong government. Um, but... Um, as, as the years went by, I think many of them did change their minds. Um, many of them felt that um, um, the, I mean, one of the things that Hitler did after the 1933 election, he, pe many people thought that he would, his, the anti-Semitism and the more sort of, the more bizarre um, aspects of Nazi rule would diminish once he was safely in power and felt secure. Of course, the reverse happened. And he he brought in so many terrifying laws and rules and regulations, people's lives were, were very constricted. Nevertheless, even in a small village like Oberstdorf, you get this extraordinary range of reaction. You get the absolute die-in-the-wool right. um, Nazis. Then you get people who just kept their heads down and didn't want to get involved in politics. And then you've got people who are anti-Hitler and the Nazis right from the start. So even in a small society, you you know, you did get this wide range of reactions. So Julia Boyd, I'm going to get very personal for a moment. I'm a former special education teacher. Mm -hmm. And when I was watching Donald Trump on the campaign trail for his first run to be president of the United States in front of a very large crowd, he mocked and made fun of a disabled New York Times reporter. And the whole, oh. the whole crowd laughed. And even though I knew he was a bad person before, that was a turn of the worm for me. It was despicable. Why do I mention that? Chapter 12 of your book talks about Theodore Weissenberger, I believe his name was. Yeah, that's and, right. And that whole image of Donald Trump making fun of a disabled New York Times reporter and a lot of things I like to explore with books of nonfiction is then and now. Then and now, figures in power will abuse people who are different. So talk about this man and why this really got me in the gut when I read this particular chapter in your book. I agree. It was, I, I, often when I was writing this book, I found it really almost too much. And I had to go and stop and go for a long walk or listen to some Bach or something to restore my faith in humanity. Um, and the chapter um, about Theodora Weissenberger was the most difficult chapter um, because uh, it was a, he was a victim of the Nazis' so-called euthanasia program. And the reason he was gassed was because he was blind. He was intensely musical and had a beautiful voice and used to sing in the church when he was a very small child. And he had learned skills in the blind school and the hope was that he would go back to Oberstdorf and live with his family. But he was taken in one of these notorious gray so-called ambulances 
and he was gassed uh, a few days after his 19th birthday. And uh, this happened to, I think, about, I, I don't know what the, I can't remember the figures, but uh, around 70,000 Germans, uh, well, great many more, but in the official euthanasia program, um, so-called euthanasia program, right. when Hitler set out to, he wanted to cull the nation of people who were disabled or blind or whatever, but also just people the Nazis didn't like. And um, uh, it, it, eventually the program was stopped, at least the public aspect of it was. The killing centres were closed because, of course, uh, it, people began to understand what was going on. But people went on, people who were disabled or mentally had mental problems or were but just different for some reason, went on being killed in institutions uh, throughout the the Reich, the Third Reich. If you don't mind me, I just have to get my composure back because it, it still gets to me in, in a very visceral manner. The other person I sat down with many years ago was Thomas Blatt. At that time, he was one of the last living survivors of Sobibor. Ah. And the reason why I mentioned Sobibor because it was a death camp. What I didn't know in reading your book was the origins of Dachau. Mm. What were the yeah. origins of Dachau? Because you write about that extensively. And I didn't even know that. So once again, I thank you and anybody else who picks the book up. Um, it's going to be a lot more than we think we know about the history of what transpired in Germany. Yes, well, Dachau, I mean, this um, very important election that was held after Hitler became chancellor, but he didn't have a strong enough majority to introduce the draconian laws that he wanted to and, and uh, have a, you know, create a totalitarian state. Um, so um, he had another election, and it was one with a lot of intimidation, and you know people were beaten up, and uh, it was a horrific uh, campaign. And then immediately after the election, um, um, Hitler introduced these. You know, people were taken into protective custody, and uh, Dachau, I think, was um, was created only about seven weeks after. Hitler came to power. So, I mean, very, very early on in, in his, um, his, his rule. Um, and uh, what I hadn't realized until I did the research for this book was that the, the big um, concentration camps that we've all heard of, like Dachau and Auschwitz and so on, um, spawned these subcamps. So Dachau had about 150 subcamps spread around the region, and people often think, well, and when I started writing this book, I mean, before I even began to write it, I thought, well, what's the point about writing about a, a village in Bavaria? The war must have largely passed it by. But the extraordinary thing is there was scarcely any, no aspect of the, the whole period that uh, didn't affect Oberstdorf in one way or another. And uh, the reason I mention this now is because there was actually one of these uh, subcamps, a Dachau subcamp, just six miles outside of Oberstdorf. It was um, uh, the, the prisoners from Dachau ran a Waffen SS training camp and they built it and so on. So the villager, and there were other camps around Oberstdorf, um, there were labor camps, um, there were slave camps, there were, there were, there was no way that the Oberstdorfers could not have realized and understood that all these foreigners and and their fellow Germans were being held in the most appalling conditions. Um, they, they, they must have known about that in, in full detail. And, and also there were many other aspects of the war. There were BMW and Messerschmitt were building engines right. in makeshift factories around Oberstdorf and people um, were involved in transport and, and clerical duties. So I think uh, they knew in in pretty good detail what was going on. Also, soldiers, of course, came back on leave and they must have told their families and friends about the uh, things they had seen and the atrocities that they themselves had probably even taken part in. I'm of Jewish heritage. I'm not very religious, but I respect the religion. I believe that the Jews, in a sense, are the chosen people. So how were the Jews, what was their life like in that village? in terms of mixed marriages, because if you had one drop of Jewish blood, you were Jewish. And here's the amazing thing. 
Isabel Wilkerson wrote the book, wrote a book. And in this book, the, the Nazis came over to the United States. The, the book is called Caste. The Nazis came over to the United States to study the caste system in America. And they thought we were worse in America in terms of a caste system than they were going to be in Germany, which is a fascinating aspect of history. So I'm going on and on, but in terms of Jewish life in that village, what was it like? Well, for a start, there were very, very few Jews living there, just a handful. And um, the only um, Jewish couple where he was actually working was a dentist, and he managed to get out of Germany just before, shortly before Kristallnacht. Um, the other Jews living there were mostly uh, Mischlinger, which meant they were either married to a non-Jew or um, they only had what were one of their parents wasn't Jewish and so on. So there, there weren't very many Jews there, but even they would not have survived had it not been for Oberstdorf's mayor, who was an extraordinary man because he was um, a dedicated Nazi. He was a former chimney sweep and he was absolutely supportive of the party. But he was one of these people who changed their mind, clearly. But he couldn't have done anything. I mean, if he'd resigned, he would have certainly gone straight to Dachau. And he had a son who was epileptic and a wife and so on. So he, he, the way he, um, he, he sort of um, managed to uh, register his, his change of mind, his change of view on, on the whole Nazi thing was by helping the Jewish people. He, he looked out for them. He, um, he tried to help other Germans in the village who got arrested for petty um, offenses or whatever. And at the end of the war, when he was under the strictest of orders to shoot anybody who tried to surrender, he didn't. So he was he was uh, clearly a, 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 a very serious Nazi, but one who changed his mind and uh, who did his best to protect the Jews who came to live in the village and indeed anybody else who um, protested against the Nazis. So let's jump ahead. And there's so much I could go to in terms of this book. And that's another tease because you got to really pick this book up. It's, it's history, but it, the narrative is very, very strong. And the way you portray the book is really, really interesting. The pages do turn. So it's now post-war Germany. Denazification is going on. And here's the gray area that you referenced. The good Nazi versus the bad Nazi in terms of identifying them. And I guess there were trials or tribunals or whatever. That's a fascinating story. I didn't know anything about this. When you say the word Nazi, there's a knee-jerk reaction to this day because we see the rise of Nazism in a sense and sympathizer in America, the extreme right wing. And it's really troubling in this country. And it's happening again in Germany, by the way. And it may be happening in other countries. And this, this, in terms of, I don't want to call it fascism, but look what's happening in Spain and Italy. All of Europe is wrestling with the white ring and their own population. So I'm going to go back to, can you break down a good Nazi versus a bad Nazi post-World War II? Well, I don't know. I think one should use the word good Nazi with, with caution. But I, I think that the fact is that, as I was trying to say earlier, that um, it, it's a more complex picture. I mean, I think a very good example to take would be the headmaster of the secondary school, who um, there's a photograph of him in the book, I think, of him wearing his SA uniform, having a jolly time with his mates in a pub. And he um, he said the right things and he behaved outwardly as if he was supporting the regime. But he was a decent human being and he tried his best to keep, uh, I mean, the grit the Nazis had on the uh, education, on education and the curriculum is absolutely horrifying. You can imagine uh, the things that the children were being taught. But this man, Bessler, did his best to keep a sense of humanity alive in the classroom. And um, he was he was treading a very difficult path because all the children and, of course, all the teachers were told to um, inform on anybody who was speaking against um, the, the the regime, and so he had to he had to be very careful. Otherwise, he would have ended up in Dachau too. But he somehow managed to 
tread this middle path. And I expect he was a conflicted man. I mean, he clearly had Nazi sympathies at the beginning, and then he tried to mitigate them. And he was, um, he, he was a, I think, a seri- serious offender who was, they had five categories, and he was the sort of middle uh, as a, a pretty serious offender. But a lot of his students came and testified at his post-war trial and said that he'd behaved very decently. He'd tried to keep a sense of of ethics and um, and, and a, a, a humane uh, atmosphere in the school, and he'd even protected some of the Jewish children who'd been there. So. That, that was what was so difficult after the war, was sorting out the people like him and the mayor, uh, Ludwig Fink. And then uh, there were other people uh, who were out-and-out Nazis and had behaved appallingly, who somehow managed to, to, to escape. So it was a very messy business, and it was a very unpopular process. It didn't really work. And in any case, the Americans, after a while, gave up and handed um, over the responsibility of trying to wheedle out the Nazis in German society to the Germans themselves. Uh, But it was a very unsatisfactory process, not least because there were no judges left. Um, They they said only people who were uncontaminated by by the the Nazis were allowed to um, preside over these uh, post-war tribunals. And of course, there were were very few judges who weren't contaminated in some ways. So the whole whole business was very um, unsatisfactory and very unpopular. And then people, they rather gave up on it so that I'm afraid hundreds of thousands of evil um, Nazis got off scot-free while others who were caught up in the, in the war who didn't do anything very terrible were sent off to, for instance, France as a prisoner of war and, and didn't, you know, may not have survived. It was a very unfair um, and very messy uh, operation. We're, we're coming to the back end, not enough time with great guests, but here's the first thing I want to ask you. As an historian, do you have to deal with confirmation bias when you're sitting down to do your research and preconceived notions? Yes, so the, the – sorry, the question is um, – Do you – there's something called in science, but also I think in terms of re- confirmation bias. In other words, you're going in with a certain, oh, yes. Yes, certain point, yes. certain point yes. of view, and you yes. may want to hold on to that point of view, but sometimes it has to change. No, well, I, I think I, I think I certainly I learned a lot when I was writing the Traveller's book because I, 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 of course, I had my my prejudices. As I mean, I absolutely hate everything to do with the with the Nazis, um, but I, what I was trying to do was to understand what it felt like to be there, to, to, to judge Germany in the 30s at the time. And of course, it, it, you know, there, were, there were a lot of soldiers, British soldiers who fought in um, Germany in the First World War, came out and supported Hitler because they felt he was um, putting Germany back where it rightfully belonged with the top table of nations. And much of Europe was languishing. You know, there was the depression and the, there was unemployment and, and suddenly Hitler seemed to be leading Germany to a brighter future and um, putting people back to work and, and all that kind of thing. So it, it, some people went to Germany in the 30s thinking this was all a, a great thing and that uh, Hitler was doing wonders for the country. And a, a lot of casual travelers felt that. It was the journalists who were really trying to tell the, the true picture, but they were very often silenced or their editors just simply didn't print their stories. And there were many heroes amongst the journalists uh, and uh, newspaper men, and who, but they had a very difficult time. That The casual tourists and many of the politicians and specialists who traveled in Germany at that time um, thought that it was all wonderful um, and they were blind to the uh, awful things that were happening behind the scenes. So as we wrap, I try to finish with this, a critique of myself, Julia Boyd. What did I miss? What did I get wrong? Did I miss anything? Did I get anything wrong that you want to re- redress? No, I think you, you, you've got a terrifically good grasp of the book and I'm I'm very flattered that you say such nice things about it. 
I can only see when I reread my books all the things that are wrong with it. And uh, I think it's impossible to, I, I, I don't think one can ever answer all the questions. I don't think all the questions that are raised by this dreadful period in our history can ever be answered. Um, but I think what is interesting and I think is a good thing, the shift, the focus now uh, has gone from the big figures, the politicians, the generals and so on. And there is much more interest now in exploring um, the experiences of people in villages and towns and and uh, how they reacted and how they dealt with these, um, the, the, how things changed and how they dealt with these ghastliness of losing right, their right. families and the bombing and all the rest of it and how they then rebuilt themselves after the war and and tried to get their lives back together. So I think there is a lot more focus now on that side of the history, which I think is probably a, a, a healthy thing, a good thing. So as we get out of here, I want to thank Paul Moses and I want to thank Julia Boyd. The book is called Village in the Third Reich. Till next time, I'm Larry Davidson. Bye-bye. The Artful Periscope podcast is brought to you by The Booth at the Sachem Public Library in Holbrook, New York, consistently voted the best on Long Island since 2015. You can find the Artful Periscope podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks goes to our producer, Christy Crisafaro, sound editors and engineer Ryan O'Hagan. The song Alleluia is performed by Vanessa, and you can find her music at starfrost.com. October Blues is performed by Dana Songs and can be found at danasongs.com. If you enjoy this podcast, visit Larry Davidson's website for more interesting content at larrydavidsonsproductions.com. You can also find out about other author-related events by visiting Sachem Public Library's website at sachemlibrary.org. Join us next time as we pull the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. Tired to her kitchen chair, she broke your throne and she cut your hair.